Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. I tell jurors that you may be disappointed because you've seen lawyers on television that kind of give you the impression of what should be a good lawyer, and I don't believe that because I believe at the core of my job is to be a teacher and not a preacher. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, uh, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. This is our first, maybe not the first one we've aired in 2022, but the first one where, where we are recording in 2022. The first one that we are recording and, uh, and we have got uh, just a, a monster uh, guest, a fantastic guest. We have uh, the one, the only Don Keenan as our uh, guest, Don, thank you so much for coming on the show. You bet. You know, I got a special affinity for Savannah, and I mean, I would have walked walked there if you would have wanted me to. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Heck, next time we do one of these, we'll have to get you up here, and we'll uh, we'll hang out a little bit downtown, or even go out on the water a little bit. Good. Um, well, um, we have a, a just, I mean, a, I, I feel like I say this every show. It's a tragic case. It's a terribly tragic case, but uh, just really, really great work. Great lawyering uh, by Don. And um, I'm going to give a little bit of a, an overview of uh, Don and who you are. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure why I'm doing that, because if there's a trial lawyer who hasn't heard of Don Keenan, then they probably haven't been paying attention for you know, at least the last 15 to 20 years. Um, so Don, uh, first I'll say Don is, uh, is the, uh, uh, the, the partner or the, has his law firm, the Keenan law firm in Atlanta, Georgia. You can look him up at KeenanLawFirm.com. That's K E E N A N lawfirm.com. He also has the Keenan trial Institute, uh, .com, uh, and, uh, also, I, I didn't see, I know, Don, you do a ton with uh, with children's work and child advocacy, and you have uh, Kenan's kids, right? That's correct. But, yeah, okay, so then that's, that's sort of your uh, charitable entity that helps uh, help, helps kids and just done a ton for advocating for, for children over the years and trying to make things safer, like playgrounds and, and things like that. But uh, just a brief rundown of some of Don's uh, accomplishments, which are uh, many. Uh, I'll first just start out by saying that uh, in his career, uh, he's had over 300 or 381 verdicts and settlements of over a million dollars, has tried cases or worked on cases in 47 different states, um, three continents. Don, wh- what are the three states that you've missed? I mean, you know, what's going on there? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the great metropolis of um, North Dakota. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, and um, um, also, um, it's a little teeny state, um, Delaware. Delaware, yeah, yeah. And uh, damned if I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I will tell you, uh, you know, I, I, I have a story from uh, taking depositions in a trucking case where I went an hour north of Minot, North Dakota, uh, and, and I did that in a, in February, which, uh, obviously wasn't planned out well, but the wind chill got down to negative 40 degrees when I was there. And, uh, I just walk, I had to walk to my rental car from the airport 
And, uh, and my, I could feel my eyes, uh, starting to stick together because they were starting to freeze shut. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) it was, uh, it was crazy, but, uh, and I should add, I, I actually, there was a defense lawyer in that case that I got along with very well. Uh, we had driven separately and we had planned on getting dinner that night before flying back to Georgia. And, uh, he, uh, he broke down, uh, like out in the middle of nowhere in North Dakota. And I said, I'm sorry, man, but I'm not going to get you. I was like, you you got to figure out how to get home yourself. <laughs> well, so uh, back to Don, back to Don. So, uh, I mean, so first of all, I think everybody, well, many people know about the, uh, uh, the, uh, the book that, that Don is so well known for and, and has really just been so profound in how it's affected the, uh, the practice of trial law, trial law uh, which is Reptile, a manual of the plaintiff's revolution. Uh, it was written, co-written with David Ball, the great uh, trial consultant from North Carolina. And, uh, and really, uh, you, know, you know, it's funny, Don, just looking up not only, you know, how many people talk about Reptile and, and, and its effect, but then how many defense lawyers have written articles on how to counter, uh, the reptile. Uh, so it, it, it's obviously, uh, had an effect on both sides of the bar. Um, and then, and then, so Don, Don was the youngest, uh, president of the, uh, American board of trial advocates, great organization, a pre- national president of the inner circle of advocates, uh, in 1999, won the chief justice award for civility and professionalism, um, from this, from, uh, the Georgia bar, um, Went to uh, won the Tradition of Excellence Award from the Georgia Bar in 2008. Has been Trial Lawyer of the Year in 1990 and in 1992. Is on the advisory committee for the National Judicial College, and uh, and went to uh, uh, the United States Marine Corps Officer uh, Officer Training School, uh, and then decided not to go forward with that, and then went to law school, and uh, and was one of the youngest graduates from graduates from Atlanta Law School at, at the age of 21 years old. Um, and then I, that, that's not I'm not even reading like all of his top achievements. But uh, <laughs> I, it, it, Oprah Winfrey, who I think some people have heard of, has called Don uh, his name Don one of the people who have courage, noting how much work he's done for child uh, rights and, ad, and and advocating for them for the past 25 years. Emory University uh, called Don the or gave Don the Career Achievement Award for Public Policy and Child Advocacy. The National Law Journal named Don one of the top three medical malpractice lawyers in the United States. Um, the Atlanta Globe named Don the voice of the voiceless. And, uh, and, and what I thought was interesting was that he's a seven-time recipient of the top 100 Irish Americans presented uh, by Irish America magazine. Um, and uh, that's just, a, that's just a, the tip of the iceberg on what Don has uh, accomplished in his career. So, uh, so we're so uh, happy, Don, and, and proud to have you on the show. Well, thank you, Steve. I uh, look forward to this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, um, let's talk. And Don, I don't, I don't know if you know, but there's there hasn't been anything official. But I would say I'm probably like in the top one million Irish Americans. Um, so hey, you yeah. and me both, both of mine, we're right there. I'm, I'm a proud, <laughs> got proud uh, Irish heritage. So uh, yeah. <laughs> Good for you. Um, well, uh, so the case that we're here to talk about was tried back in in 2000. Um, and the name of the case was Bartholomew versus Zerberg, uh, and was a medical malpractice case that was tried in Beaufort County, South Carolina, which is just across the border from where I am uh, here in Savannah, Georgia. 
um, and resulted in a at, at what at the time was the largest medical malpractice verdict in South Carolina, which was thirteen point seven five million dollars. Um, and it's just a, a, a I've already said it. It's just a tragic case. Um, but I'll, I'm going to give a brief sort of rundown of the facts and a, a timeline. Uh, so Sally Bartholomew was born on December 19th, 1994. She was born healthy. Uh, 10 days later, she went to her first visit with a pediatrician, which was Joe Zerberg. Um, and that was, so that was on December 29th, 1994. And there was a couple of issues noted of feeding problems, mild jaundice. Uh, and then on January 14, 1995, um, Dr. Eric Zerberg, uh, saw, Sally and diagnosed her and that Eric Zerberg is Joe Zerberg's husband. So it's a husband and wife pediatrician team uh, up in uh, Hilton Head, South Carolina. Um, and he diagnosed her with pneumonia, conjunctivitis and an upper respiratory infection. She came back two days later on January 16, 1995. Um, and it was noted that she had, that her color was gray. She had lost a significant amount of weight. I think I saw in the evidence that she had lost about 10% of her body weight in one week, um, which is a, 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 you know, just a, a huge amount. Um, and then she, um, was also noted as being less alert. And then amazingly, um, it is, this is just shocking to me as a parent, was that the doctors then said that, well, she should, they, the mom uh, should then drive Sally to the hospital and, and down to Memorial Hospital in Savannah, um, which uh, is about a 15 mile drive. And I know that was noted in the, uh, in the evidence. I can tell you, it, it might be 15 miles on the map, but that, that's about a 45 minute drive. Um, you know, if traffic is, is mm -hmm. cooperating with you, which many times it doesn't on Hilton head. So the doctors tell her that she needs to go to, um, to the hospital because, uh, Sally's color is gray. Um, and so, um, so her mother is driving her on the highway to the hospital, uh, and looks over and sees Sally has turned blue, has stopped breathing, uh, basically, you know, while trying to control the car on the highway, you know, picks up her baby, uh, Sally and starts giving mouth to mouth, um, resuscitation calls 911 at the same time. Um, it's about somewhere I, I saw the evidence was somewhere between 11 to 17 minutes or 16 minutes. It took for the EMTs to get there and all that time she's trying to give uh, resuscitative breathing, but not getting, you know, enough air into Sally. Um, and so basically by the time that the EMTs get to Sally, she's, uh, um, I think she's her, I think she was down to four breaths a minute. I saw in your closing, Don, that one of the things that I, I thought, you know, must've been just tremendously effective was you acted out what four breaths a minute would be, uh, you know, for the jury. And, um, you know, so, just extremely oxygen deprived. Um, the, you know, the EMTs called to Memorial hospital, Memorial is there and waiting, uh, for her. And, um, but by the time she gets there, uh, she suffered uh, tremendous brain damage, uh, uh, due to a lack of oxygen has a respiratory infection. Um, and was severely, um, I mean, the, it sounded like it was touch and go for a long time, uh, whether or not she was going to live at all in and out of, uh, of a coma. 
um, does survive thanks to, um, and we're going to talk about this, one of the treating pediatricians at the hospital, Dr. Rowlett, who ended up being one of, uh, one of Don's uh, best witnesses at trial, I believe. Um, and then, um, but, but unfortunately, by that point, she had suffered such a uh, brain injury that um, uh, she was never going to be able to uh, know more than about 20 to 50 words in her lifetime. Um, was going to have to wear a diaper for the rest of her life, was going to need 24-hour care, and just profoundly, profoundly uh, brain damaged. And we'll talk about this in a, in, as we talk about the case, but the defense, you know, basically was that, well, she was already brain damaged or she was brain damaged by something else, not what happened on the, uh, on the highway or not during this period of time going to the hospital. Um, so that's basically the case. And, um, and again, fantastic work. One of the things I guess we should start with, Don, um, is that you, when you tried this case, you uh, didn't start with the standard of care criticisms uh, as far as your evidence and your opening. You went into um, talking about causation first, and it sounded like that was a big battleground. Um, and, then, and then basically presented evidence on causation before getting to the standard of care violations. Um, is that right? Uh, that's right. Tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about the, um, and I saw in one of the articles written about this, that that's, that's sort of your approach to most of the medical malpractice cases. Tell us, you know, about that approach and, and, and why you choose to go that route um, in, in presenting uh, medical malpractice cases. Well, Steve, good question, because um, the answer to it dictates the result uh, in the case. Now, I've tried all kinds of difficult cases, five death penalty cases, uh, some high-end commercial fraud cases. But clearly, the medical malpractice case is the most difficult, if for no other reason than the favoritism that the jury sits down at the beginning of the trial with. I mean, they do. I mean, uh, health care is their protector. Uh, their umbilical cord for good health. And they're not about to bite the hand that feeds them. So you got, and then in this case, we had seven other disincentives. Uh, but this was the biggest one. And so after having lost a number of otherwise really good malpractice cases, I stepped back and said, well, you're either a part of the problem or you're a part of the solution. What, am, what, what can we change, right? And so I said, well, um, let's reorder. I mean, in law school, as you know, we learn about a breach of the standard of care and we learn about causation and we learn about damages. Okay? And then we, for whatever reason, try the case in exactly that order. And what I found is that the defendants will fight you tooth and nail on liability. They'll throw yeah. everything they're imagining at you. Okay. Um, and so what happens is, you know, all of our efforts then are front-loaded. And the jury then becomes consumed with this liability war. Uh, and then assume you get over it, they're spent. They're, they're, they're right. exhausted, okay? Uh, where I want my jury 
is I want them spending their time in what the justice of the case should be. What should be the verdict in the case? I want them fresh. I want them zeroed in on it. And so when you examine this order thing, okay, what I missed, and what I think a lot of lawyers missed, because we don't think like bubble, okay? When right. we're, you know, we're overeducated, you know, we're you know, fluent and stuff. We don't live in bubble world. So we don't think like bubble, although some lawyers think they do, but they don't. <laughs> right. And so uh, they can't, right? They just can't. Right. Um, and so um, I thought, okay, what would happen if we won causation first? In other words, we proved without any doubt that the injury occurred on the watch of the doctor. Right there, boom, he was in charge of it. Just like an obstetrical case, just like this pediatric case. And so what turned into from a quandary, a query, turned into the roadmap of many successful uh, plaintiff's verdicts. Because what happens, if the jury is absolutely convinced early in the case, and they've got the energy and they've got the focus that it happened during the doctor's watch, then they say, well, why wasn't that prevented? Yeah. You know, and so you're at the top of the mountain they're at the bottom of the mountain. And I hate to be this simplistic, but if you do it correctly, focus groups have shown, and my verdict history has shown, it's hard to lose case. It's just hard to lose case. Uh, now, in this case, as we talked earlier uh, off the taping, the defendants did what they always do. They threw the kitchen sink that causation. Oh, it was, I think their silliest defense was it was, you can look at, at Sally's nipple formation and clearly see that there's a cafe au lait appearance. What does that mean? That means she had some kind of DNA alteration. Well, listen, I stared, I, I don't, don't get me wrong. I stared at those nipples a hundred hours. I didn't see nothing abnormal about it. And I knew the jury would uh, as well. But their first throw it on the wall, see if it stuck, was that. And it literally went down the line to every damn thing. I mean, I even joked uh, and have joked that they threw in everything except El Nino. Right. <laughs> uh, and if they'd have paused a little bit, they'd have probably thrown that in. But when, you, when you're able in the first two or three minutes of the trial to knock out the jury even wanting to think about all that crazy crap, then, you know, you're, again, you're at the top of the mountain. So, Yvonne, the internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic, and it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is 
is search engine optimization. It's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that um, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that it was the defendant doctor, um, Dr. Zerberg, who testified about Rett syndrome and that this cafe au lait appearance was, you know, showed that there was some sort of genetic defect. It, it, and, you, you know, and you have to, it, it sort of begs the question when you, if you've got her on crosses, well, if you thought she had some sort of genetic dysfunction, why didn't you note that in the medical records and talk about it to the parents? You know, it, it just comes up later, you know, when you're at trial. Um, so I, I thought that was interesting. And then I thought, that, you, you know, the other thing was, is that you, um, because of this defense that they had, you went out and got a geneticist who to talk about it. Uh, and the defense did not. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Um, and that was their and that was their key part of their defense was or a big part of their defense, I guess, was this uh, that it either happened in utero or was a genetic defect of some sort. And Steve, if I may. Um it's not like there's a lot of first in this case, but when I went back over it um, and then I look at all the students that were teaching in the trial Institute, and it's up to about 5,000 now, 400 graduates. Um, the one thing that's common uh, is they know what the defenses are going to be and they think, well, what the hell, we'll just, we'll just sit back until they put them up, and then we'll knock them down. Right. I mean, anybody that's played competitive sports doesn't stand there and say, oh, I'll wait until I get hit. That's right. I mean, we went right after them. So the geneticist was, you know, what, what's your job? Well, my job was to see if there was any uh, genetic anomalies. Now, wait a minute. That's a big word. What's that mean? That means problems. Okay. Now, let's let's consider, how many did you consider? I considered 16 of all right, fine. Well, let's write them up on the flip chart. Give them due weight and then tell us how that was resolved. So you literally take an hour or so of the trial where you are literally gutting the defenses even before they've been able to come up. Right. Which um, I've always thought was the best way to do it. But still today, oh, crap. You still don't do it that way. 
Yeah, you you, you still I I agree with you on that because uh, you know I like hitting things head on and and the the advantage that we have as plaintiffs lawyers uh, you know as plaintiffs is that we get to go first. So, you know, we get to, you know, set the battlefield. We get to set, you know, where's the fight going to be? And when you address it, you know, head on like that, and then they don't even bring a geneticist. And when when this doctor, defendant doctor gets up there and starts talking about it, it's kind of like, well, why are you talking about this? I mean, we've already heard from an expert and they ruled it out. And, you know, now all of a sudden you're, you're going to make us believe that, that that's what happened. Um, well, Donna, I'm interested in your thoughts because I think I think one of the things that can make it tricky when you're thinking about, OK, you know, going ahead and knocking out some of these um, defenses or preemptively addressing some of those defenses with a jury, um, you know, or even even when you um, are writing a brief or, or arguing something before the court, I think it can be a struggle, especially for new lawyers to both be responsive or or sort of preemptively responsive to the arguments that you know are coming without falling into the trap of letting the defense frame your case or frame the issues and and talking about the things that they want you to talk about instead of talking about the things that you want to talk about or, or that are best for your case to talk about. So I'm I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on how you strike the appropriate balance of of addressing what you need to address without um you know without it taking over your story? Well, there's is, is a couple prongs to that answer. Number one, um, we've done a tremendous amount of focus groups on what does the jury want from us plaintiff's lawyers, okay? And more importantly, what they don't want, right? And so, and I'll just whittle some of that down by saying, and I'll, I'll do this in Bordier, which, by the way, we did not get in South oh, Carolina. Really? <laughs> we were in South Carolina, you know. Lawyers <laughs> can't do. What are you talking about, Keenan? You can't do Bordier here. I'm the judge. I can do it. I'm an expert at it. Okay, mm-hmm. sit, sit back and maybe learn something. <laughs> uh, so, um, but in, in enlightened jurisdictions, uh, I'll say, now, ladies and gentlemen, we can do this two ways. You know, I can be the lawyer that objects to everything, okay? Uh, I can be the lawyer who is an adversary. Or I can be a lawyer who believes my job is simply to bring you the evidence, respect you, and know you'll make the right decision. Which do you want? Which do you want? Now, come on. And, you know, I know the National Judicial College, we take, uh, surveys all the time. What do jurors hate? What do jurors like? And the one thing that consistently, I've been on the board 15 years, that ranks number one is they don't like lawyers objecting and fussing with one another. Why? That detracts away from their job. All they, want, they really do want to do the right job. Okay? And we just, we just make it very difficult for them. So, yeah. So, Vaughn, I think uh, first and foremost, uh, and, I, and I tell jurors that um, you may be disappointed because you've seen lawyers on television that kind of give you the impression of what should be a good lawyer. And I don't believe that, okay? Because I believe at the core of my job is to be a teacher and not a preacher. A preacher dictates what you hear and what you should believe. 
I, for one, think the jury system is the greatest thing that's ever happened, and your collective wisdom is beyond all comprehension. You can figure it out, folks. And uh, and you probably saw in my closing argument 20 years ago that I was saying what I say now. It's my job to bring you the evidence, to help you with some of the difficult spots, but then respect you enough to stand back. You're the boss, whatever you decide, okay? And the what you decide has really led me into uh, you know, some funny positions. Like, you probably noticed that this case, I didn't ask for an amount. Right. You know, I I put up the life care plan, but then I said, no, I'm not going to tell you. Because you know. You absolutely know. Okay? Because what had happened about a year earlier is I had a case in which um, I... It was a punitive case, divided, to which I I uh, asked for $10 million on the compensatory side. And that jury stayed out, Jesus, probably two, three days. I wonder what, what, you know, you always get kind of answers. And came back with this verdict. $10 million, $1. $1. And I'm saying to myself, what the hell is that? Okay. I knew instantly what it meant, but I just didn't want to agree that I'd ask for too little. That's what they were telling me. You idiot. Right. You should have asked for more. Okay. <laughs> and so I listen, I had a sleepless night before punitive. And then we come up to the punitive argument. And of course, the local lawyers were saying, oh, shit, you lost the case. You asked for too much, blah, blah, blah. You know. So rule number one, don't ever listen to the local lawyers. <laughs> so, but even though many of them were friends of mine. Right. I came up to the closing in the punitive section and I said, listen, I ain't stupid. I know what you did to me. You gave me a spanking. You told me I didn't ask for enough money. That's what that $1 was. I know it was. I've learned the lesson. I'm not going to ask for anything. All I'm going to do is step back and say, listen, you're the boss. You know what you're going to do. So I just need to get out of the way and let you do it. Well, I didn't know what they were going to do because they came out with $100 million. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> and so in, in this case, uh, Reese Williams, a uh, dear friend of mine, uh, one of the mainstays of the South Carolina bar, um, you know, he did the rebuttal. I mean, the, the closing, closing argument. And this is what it was. He said, folks, we've taken up too much of your time. We're not going to do it again. You know what you're going to do here. So let me sit down and let you go do it. And that was it. <laughs> that was it. Uh, yeah. And there's a lot of symbolism in giving the jury the number one respect. Yeah. And number two, confidence they're going to do the right thing. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Which I've, I've never, ever lost. I mean, come on. We've all lost cases. But 
even through that, thank God it's been a long time ago, but um, I've never lost my my thrill as a little child with the jury system uh, and the magic of that. Uh, it's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what, speaking of you, you said it just now and it, so it made me think of it in your closing. One thing that I really liked, you know, when you're talking about, you know, letting the jury know what their uh, power is and, and empowering the jury to do the right thing. And is that you uh, multiple times in your closing, you know, told them that they were the boss, that you're the boss and you guys, you're the ones in charge here. So we're, you know, trying to give you what we, what we can, but I, I, I just like that, um, that way of referencing uh, the jury, because it, especially a closing argument at the end, I mean, they are the boss. They're definitely in charge of what's going to happen on the case. Well, if I may, um, with our, our trial college, which I'm immensely proud of, uh, almost 10 years now, I've not taught a single class. What I've done, though, is I've taught every one of the faculty people who get in there and, uh, and teach. Uh, and here's what I've learned. Um, we're all looking for something to read that we can understand that gives us power. Um, and I think clearly the greatest book on that subject was the Dale Carnegie, you know, and you know it, Steve, what is it? How to influence friends and family. Yep. Okay. And what a lot of people don't realize is it very early in Carnegie's book? And by the way, that book was written in 1934. It's still the number one nonfiction book in the world. Okay. Uh, and they've battered it back. And he uses, obviously, examples like Teddy Roosevelt and, you know, the stock market, uh, ever, whatever. And they've toyed with the idea, well, we need to make it modern. And then they look at it and they say, these are the these are repetitive histories. We don't need to make it modern. This book is just as damn relevant in 2022 as it is in 1934. So let me let me plant my flag on one of the things that's so true. And you were you were knocking at the door. Um, Carnegie says that we all have absolute needs, not wants, needs. We've got to have it, got to have it. And he writes about it, and he talks about food, and he talks about water, okay? Uh, but then he, he stumbled into something that just shocked many people when he says, this may be the most important thing for all of us. We need to feel important. All of us in different ways, but we can't sustain our life unless we think we're important. And so I've got a whole section in my closings to where, you know, I beat that drum in Vordire when I do get it. Uh, I ask them, I said, do you feel important? And they said, well, no, no. What about in your family? Come on, you feed the kids, you do their want. Is that important? Well, yes, I guess it is. Okay. Uh, and so once you pump into them that of 141 nations on, on this earth, we're the only ones that got the jury trial. And you pump into them that Jefferson called the jury trial justice by the people. Right. Not, rich, not rich people, not bureaucrats, people. 
Okay. Um, and I, I sometimes find, you know, I had one defense lawyer tell me, when you do that important stuff, Ken, we can't win. They don't feel important by dumping a plaintiff and kicking them out of the courtroom. They don't feel important doing that. I said, well, you know, life's a bitch. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> Just get over it. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I guess, you know, I guess adding on to that idea of importance, you know, another thing that you did in your closing, and, and this is what everybody, especially whoever represents a child, but who represents anybody should be doing. Um, but it is you, you talk to the jury about the fact that, that they were essentially in charge of how she was going to spend the next 70 years of her life. Uh, beyond, you know, when a lot of, uh, you would still be around. They were, what they did there today was going to, uh, determine, you know, how Sally lived, uh, the rest of her life. And, uh, that's just, it's just a great way of really bringing home the impact and how important, and we all know how important, um, you know, trials are and especially to our clients. Um, but that, I, I just thought that was a really effective way to, um, to let the jury know, uh, you know, that what you do here today is going to have a profound impact on her for many years to come. Well, Steve, I, some people may say I overdo it in this category, but uh, what I do on that issue in order to make it profoundly powerful is I say uh, at the end of the trial, as we are now, we all have to go to the top of the mountain and look into the future. So come with me to the top of the mountain while we just do that and look, look to the right of the effects of a defense verdict. There's a concrete floor. There's steel beds. There's a big room with about 10 kids in it, and they're all screaming. Um, that's the state institution. You know that. And that's where they're going. Now, if we look left at what your verdict will do, I see a beautiful house that is rehabbed with grab rails um, and special uh, safety done throughout the house. I see a van that's specially equipped for the little wheelchairs. You know, uh, I see people coming and going in the house that are rehab people that are going to give quality of life to the child. That's your verdict. That's what you decide. Yeah. And that makes it a little bit more real when you're doing that. You know, one Absolutely. example I remember using, um, Yvonne, you, you, I know you know where Central City Park is in Atlanta. And that's, it's been a while since I've lived there, but uh, that's where a lot of the homeless people mm -hmm. congregate. You know, 60-year-olds, 10-year-olds, you name it. And so what I do is I would say, listen, ladies and gentlemen, all we lawyers really want for you is to feel comfortable and be at peace with your verdict. But let me tell you, and I'll guarantee this is going to happen. You're going to think of this case a year from now or five years from now, or it may not be till 10 years from now. It's going to flash in your 
your head. Wonder where Kelowna is now. And with the defense verdict, you know she's in the central city park. Hmm. You know, she's got all of her worldly possessions in a brown paper bag. She's got dirt on her face. She's got fingernails that are caked with uh, her last 10 meals. And so with the defense verdict, if you're down Central City Park and you see a young woman of about 25 and you do the math and you say to yourself, God, I wonder if that's going I want you to be at peace with that decision. I want you to be okay with that decision. And the see, you're smiling, Steve. You know what the best <laughs> yeah. is going to be. Right, right. Good. But, you know, that's, that's where I think, again, lawyers make the big mistake. They don't put the emotion on the juror's shoulders. They don't yeah. literally tell them that, that you are taking your burden that you carried for all the years you've represented. And whoa, the burden is being placed upon the juror's uh, shoulders. I had I had one case in Fulton County where um, a young female juror, when I did that, stood up, screamed, and ran out to courtroom. Oh, my goodness. And then told the bailiff, who came to find out what, what her problem was, she says, no, I'm just trying to compose myself. Don't, don't exclude me. Please, please, I'll be right back. And she came back, sat down. And then later explained that it wasn't until that moment that she understand the gravity of her role in passing on somebody else's life. And then yeah. when, it, when it did, she cracked. Okay, well, that's that should be our goal is not, not to get them to crack, but to get them to damn understand it. Understand why you're what you're doing here. Okay. Uh, and it's every kind of analogies I can do. I mean, it could be 30 years from now, you know, your child has their children in their back seat and you come downtown and you pass this courthouse. And then they point to the window. That is where your great grandfather sat on one of the most important verdicts in our county. Our family member. Okay. Uh, I mean, there's a thousand different ways that you can yeah. legitimately um, convey that importance. And if you don't, then, you know, it's just numbers. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now 
Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them. And uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah. And I mean, LTS, I'm going to, I'm going to call them LTS because we, yes. we're on a first name basis. <laughs> you know, my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot. Their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well, whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. Well, you know, the um, going back to, you know, how you presented the case and starting out with the, uh, with the causation part of it, I also wanted to talk just a little bit about the the fact that your the your order of proof the first witnesses that you called you started with the mother and had her basically describe um you know what had happened on the highway uh to sort of you know show you know and and, and really it, it does go right to the heart of the causation argument but also it's just a it's a very profound moment um and then and then called the EMTs who went out there and tried to save uh, Sally's life and then called an EMT expert, um, you know, to talk about, uh, I, I mean, which, you know, to me is the most important thing, which is, you know, when you recognize these types of symptoms in a, um, in a, in a child, why would you ever have the parents drive them to the hospital? I mean, that just, especially a hospital that's not right around the corner. Um, I mean, Memorial from Hilton Head is, uh, it's a long, it's a long drive. Um, especially if you're frantic and worrying about what's happening to your baby. Um, so uh, talk about that a little bit, you know, cause a lot of times we'll talk about the plaintiffs, you know, you'll save them towards the end of the, of the uh, plaintiff's case in chief, maybe have them be the last witness. You kind of want to leave, uh, the jury with a, you know, the emotional impact of that. And that kind of goes back to sort of hitting the, the liability first. So talk about the decisions, you know, also to, to start out with the, with the mother in this case. Well, see, again, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I mean, what I teach my, my faculty and what they in turn 
teach. The college is what I do. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, what I what I teach is that you always call your most dramatic, your best witness first. First. And then you call your second best witness last. Okay. Um, and so with that um, guideline, the first witness can be just about anybody. Okay. But in this case, it happened to be uh, Mama, Carol, Carol Bartholomew. And one of the real complicating factors that the jury didn't see, but, you know, people that listen to the history of this case don't know, but we lost the first 20 focus groups. Why? Oh, wow. Why? Well, if I were the mother, I'd have done this. I mean, negative attribution out the yin yang. Okay. Mm -hmm. Worse yet, mama, as mamas always do, blamed herself. And so once we unlocked Carol from the guilt of having caused this, then we started winning the focus Okay. Uh, and so we went from absolutely no plaintiffs votes because of all what I just said to once we prepared her and by, by the way the, the template of preparing her is a seven part uh, system that again we teach in the college uh, and usually the main part of it is removing the guilt Removing the guilt. And so in this case, you know, I went through a series of questions. Are you a doctor? No. Do you know how to diagnose illnesses in children who can't talk? No. Uh, can you admit Sally into the hospital? No. Um, can you run tests on Sally? No. Now, can the doctor do all that? Yes. Did he? No. Carol, how in the name of God can you look at me and tell me this is your fault? Come on, tell me that. Because if you do, and if you believe it, that it's your fault, then we just got to dismiss. We got to go home. Case is over with. Is that true? And I usually give them the night to think about it. And then they come in the next day all fired up. Right. But I can't believe that <laughs> he made me think it was my fault. Whatever. Uh, and once you've got a witness all fired up, then uh, you're on the road to a plaintiff's group. Now, it was interesting. Um, I prepared her about nine months before the trial. And this transformation, once you knew, you know, are you a doctor? Can you prescribe? Can you do, 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 You can go back and, and look at those videotapes. And it was clear that every one of those questions started to empower Carol. So I didn't talk to her another time 
until I put her on the witness stand. And I, and I told her in advance, I said, you know, we're not trying to massage the truth. We're not trying to manipulate this, that, and the other. All you've got to do is speak from your heart, and it'll be fine. It's my job to make sure you go the places you need to go. And so the night before she was going to get on the stand, she said, you're not going to prepare me? I said, not unless you think I got to. But I think you're just fine, and we can mess it up if we go about doing it now. So I literally put her on the witness. Are you a medical doctor? And I knew that was the case breaker. So that's where I started. Carol, where, I think I even said, where did you get your medical degree? <laughs> she says, I didn't. Didn't you go to medical school? No. You consider yourself a doctor? <clears throat> Why did you go to this guy? Well, he was the only doctor on the internet. Did you have a choice? No, I didn't have a choice. Uh, and it was that first 10 minutes that blew up, you know, their defense uh, and got us into the case. It did. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I want to go back one second and ask you about the focus groups. You said you did 20 or at least lost the first 20 of them and then um, and then to were able to turn it around. How many focus groups do you uh, do for your cases that go to trial? And, and talk a little bit about how you're able to put together so many of them and, and, and do so many uh, uh, focus groups like that. Well, first of all, there's a lot of misapprehension about <clears throat> those numbers. Uh, for example, yesterday, yeah, yesterday, um, we do focus groups every week. And sometimes, and it's usually from noon until five o'clock. Uh, and Zoom is great because we get people all over the damn country. And we can be case specific in terms of only from Savannah, okay, or generic for the whole country, whatever. But uh, there are uh, 24 separate types of focus groups. The big one, which we used to do exclusively in the early day, was we tried the case. Opening statements, calling witnesses, giving a closing, giving jury charge. And it would take all day. Okay. Uh, then we learned there's real advantage in breaking it down. So yesterday's focus group, we did five cases in five hours. Um, two of them were narrative, which means it's the first focus group we do. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we ain't got a dog in the hunt here. We're just going to tell you about the fact patterns. I don't know if there's somebody responsible, but after that, you're going to tell us. And then you just la di da di da di da di da it's an overview. They jump, and you can usually identify the biggest defense rats in that type of a focus group. They'll just jump right out. What's the mom's fault? Yeah. You know? Uh, then we do, uh, as we did yesterday, we did the opening statement focus. This one was an opening statement, just our side. Okay. A lot of times we'll do it with the defense opening statement. And then some lawyers say, what? Why are you just doing your side of the opening? 
well, listen, buddy, if we can't win it, you know, answers itself, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, then why do we want to put up a defense hole? Uh, so we do that. And um, uh, I know in um, in Sally's case, uh, we did, uh, we had all of our experts on videotapes. Likeability, credibility, far surpasses the content of the opinions, in my opinion. So, you know, we play 30 minutes of... Um, you know, the, uh, the geneticist and say, you know, uh, what do you think? Was it confusing? Did you like the guy? Da, 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 da. So those are four examples of focus groups that we do. But uh, last case we tried was in West Florida. Uh, no offer case again. Um, $7 million worried. And I think we did about 15 focus groups. Right. You see, don't don't get the many people get the impression, oh, it oh, took a whole day to do folks. No, shit, it might be an hour and a half to do a particular type of focus group. Yeah. yeah. You know, why it, it just behooves me that we can't talk to the jury during the trial, but we can know what they're thinking if we've done focus groups. Because in my opinion, the focus group is like the MRI. It's like going inside Bubba Head and determining what's important to him and why he has certain opinions, why he has a certain bias. Okay. Uh, and so why lawyers don't do uh, focus groups out in the Indian. And I, I'd like to credit with some of the uh, explosion of focus groups, but it sincerely is I have never lost a case that I was surprised about. I never won a case that I was surprised about. Yeah, well. Focus groups take. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, let, let's talk a little bit about the standard of care uh, once you moved into that phase of the case. Because uh, there's two things that I that I sort of picked up from your closing that I, I really want, wanted to make sure we touched on and give you a chance to talk about. But one is the concept that the standard of care argument that the, the doctor's job is just to hope for the best, but plan for the worst. Yeah. Uh, and I really like that concept. But can you talk about that, that, uh, you know, how you present that to the jury as far as uh, your standard of care argument? Well, uh, KTI has done an annual medical malpractice seminar, two days with 20 speakers. We're coming up next month on the fifth year we met. Okay. Um, now, here's the revelation that usually occurs with first-timers. And I'm not guessing about it because they actually come out and say it. Right. And that is somebody will... You sit there and listen to all these great presentations, and let me tell you how I won my case. And, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then we do kind of a takeaway. What, what are you learning from this? Okay. And the one thing that's a shocker to most people, malpractice case is rarely about the medicine, Steve. And if you try to make it about the medicine, Bubba not going to get it. It's going to fly right over Bubba's head. 
you have to come up with generalized con concepts that, yeah, they fit into a standard of care, but but look at the hoping they're hoping for the best, planning for the worst. I mean, the planning for the worst is running the right tests, you know, communicate with one another, you know, all those kind of things. But why dump it down into big ass medical terms when Ladies and gentlemen, you got one simple job to do in this case. Did they plan for the worst? Now, they cannot answer that in most cases. Yeah. You put up somebody like Zerber, who's ready for all the medicine. And you say, sir, I'm here at this butcher paper here. I got my magic marker. I'm going to write down. When you tell me all the things you did, they're planned for the worst. What was it? What'd you do? Of course, he didn't do anything. Uh, he says, well, that's that's a trick question. Huh. I said, okay. Uh, how about trying to answer it? Uh, and then I said, before we leave this, let, let the record show the doctor has not given us one single thing that he did that represents planning for the worst. Not a one. Now, doctor, that's your last opportunity. You can jump in and give us one. No. Uh, and so I, 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 I submit to you, that ain't complicated medicine across the right. It's just not. Yeah. Well, and, and again, it goes nicely, especially in a case where, you know, you've got a differential diagnosis, which I noticed you call process of elimination. Um, but, the, the, you know, where there's a whole bunch of things that could happen and it's what every doctor does when they're diagnosing, uh, you know, and, it, and if they've chosen the one that might be more likely, but has, you know, the least negative effect, and then they ignore one that it might be more rare, but will have severe, you know, complications, you know, they're not planning for the worst. I mean, it makes uh, complete sense. Well, you know, on that issue, even though you don't get Vordire in South Carolina, uh, and I always love this about the differential. I said, uh, and in Vordire, I said, how many of y'all are differential diagnosis of people? And they all look at you like you're nuts. Okay, well, how many of y'all are mechanics or have been a mechanic? And you don't know right away what's wrong with the engine. But you go through and test as a process of elimination and you come up with what is the problem. Do you do that? Yes. What about computer repair people? Same drill. What about the housewife who's cooking the damn turkey or baking the pie? That's all differential diagnosis. Yeah. And then I, I just flip in there wonder if there's some reason why these doctors don't call it what it is. You know, they have to come up with some big name that none of us use to describe what all of us do. It's the process of elimination. Okay? I do it every night with the remote control. I process the <laughs> what the hell I want to watch. Right, right. <laughs> it ain't difficult. Uh, yeah, that's right. But also, you probably saw there, I'm a big believer. Uh, in fact, at that seminar coming up, I'm, I'm supposed to do 30 minutes on labeling, just like process of elimination is that. Um, 
babies can't talk, but they sure can give out SOSs. Yeah, yeah. And the SOSs that they're giving out is, I'm in trouble, Doc. Hey, I'm doing everything I can through my heart rate and through everything else to tell you it's not going well in here. It's an SOS, you know. Yeah. I saw that. And that was the other part I was going to bring up about the standard of care argument, which is which is this, you know, calling it an SOS signal that the baby can't can't uh, speak, but but her body is speaking for her. And, and you, you know, and then you sort of went through all of the signs that she was sending, that she was jaundiced, that she had a lack of color, that she had pro- feeding problems. She was listless and passiveness and those types of things all were, you know, early signs of a respiratory infection and, and pneumonia, uh, which can be severe uh, with the child. So, um, they, you know, I, I thought the way that was brought home, um, you know, in the in the case, just uh, obviously worked really well. Well, Steve, another close second to that. We always, in cases, take all the high points, like you said, the jaundice, temperature, and we have the jury recite that, the focus recite that to us. I'm up there writing, jaundice, boom, boom, boom. You got 20 things up there. I say, now folks, let's take a look at this thing. This all happened. When do you think it was undeniable, irrefutable, whatever big word you want to have, the doctor had to do something? Like right there. Had to do something. And I just, I'm so far away from being a bubble, I don't even try to guess it. Because they're all the time just kicking me in the teeth. Uh, And what was it in Sally's case? She was gray. Yeah. Over, done, stick a fork in it. Bubba say, you know, I don't care what the temperature was, I don't care what this was, I don't care what. She was gray. Now, we know what that means. It's bad, real bad. And you don't stand there looking at it. And you sure to shit don't send her down the highway all by her lonesome um, alone in yeah. the baby gray. So, again, they, we, everybody credits me for being so brilliant. It's not. I just have sense enough to listen to focus groups. Um, I had a question reading the closing. I wasn't sure if um, it sounded like I I wasn't sure when this happened. It sounded like maybe you had made Sally um, available um, either to a defense expert for examination or an independent medical examination. Um, I wasn't sure if that was the case, but I thought the way that you talked about it um, was really effective because you because you connected it to all their sort of bullshit defenses, but also your focus on just trying to be fair. And can you imagine that's you know how difficult this was for the parents, but they did this to be fair. Well, one that really opens up a, a door that I think plaintiffs lawyers need to recognize. Sometimes we do the damn stupidest things. Like I have these lawyers all the time; they're fighting the IME. Oh, how can we do it? Oh, okay. Why do you want to fight it? Bubba ain't stupid. <laughs> Come on, Bubba, no. Uh, they don't treat people. They can't diagnose your client. You know, they can't prescribe 
anything. They're not independent. You know who they're hired by. And we're afraid of that? Shit. That adds fuel to they'll do anything to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, and nobody, 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 nobody thinks that's fair. Okay. Uh, and so have at it. You want to make up a cafe au lait bullshit defense? You want to talk about El Nino beer salad, as sweet and nice as she could be? Have at it. Test her. Do whatever the shit you want. <clears throat> and if you want to do it again, you can do it again. Now, what kind of message do you think that sends to the blackouts? Has he lost his mind? Or is he basically telling us, we ain't got nothing to hide here. Come after it. Right. And many times, Steve, they won't proceed with the examination. Mm -hmm. Well, we're we're on other issues now. Right. right. Come on, come on, on, do it, do it. You might learn something. No, no, no. Um, one thing I had to point out because I, I, I loved it so much, you know, is, um, cause I'm just me personally in our firm, we, we take voracious notes during the defendant's opening statement. And so that we can tell the jury, you know, everything that the defendant said in the opening statement. And, um, and one of the things that the defense lawyer, I think said in this case was the HIE or uh, hypoxic in, uh, um, encephalopathy was ischemic encephalopathy wasn't involved in this case. And then you basically went through all of these records from Johns Hopkins and from all of these other providers that all refer to this as HIE and that, that it all happened, you know, when the baby was about three weeks old, you know, and, and, you know, on the way to the hospital and it just, uh, it makes you wonder what goes through a a defense lawyer's mind when they make a statement like that, knowing that the records can be so firmly planted up there behind. Um, but go, go ahead. They depend on the fact this is a three-week trial and Bubba going to forget. Yeah. You can't let them forget. So when you got the Hopkins person up there said, did you write this HIE? Yeah. Now, jury, jury already knows what that is. Uh, now, did you do that after the lawsuit got filed to help Sally? No, we didn't do something like that. Well, here's the question I got. Well, you weren't here for the open, were you? I want you to assume that one of them lawyers over there, I even forget who it was, said such and so. Okay? Do you know why they would have said that? Hmm? Do you know why? Well, it answers itself, doesn't it? Yeah. And they hate that shit. Yeah. And then they add to it, they actually help us. Objection, Your Honor, that's irrelevant. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, now, uh now, go now ahead. Remember, one of the one of the issues in this case is you as you well, maybe 20 years after the fact in Savannah. You don't see, you know, across the river in Buford. I mean, that is a uh, pretty provincial. They're not metropolitan. They're not urbanized. I mean, they're very much. I mean, I remember when um, I was asking uh, about the, uh, I said, Judge, would you please ask the jury if they are familiar with PowerPoints on laptops? 
Now, I would have asked that in Vordire, but since I didn't, I got the judge. And so he said, yeah, okay, that's fine. And two people said, no, I don't use it. And the judge walked right into it and said, how come? And I remember the guy down front said, it's radioactive. Yeah. No, and it's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, just revealed right. <laughs> who you folk are. All right, so because of that, I mean, we had a lot of PowerPoint and animations and boom. I stayed back at the hotel. It, but we were into the butcher paper. That's how we were going to do But, yeah. but here, here is something that um, um, you, you probably know because you've been around. Is that area don't like northerners? Okay. Particularly northerners from come down from the north, build the big fancy ass homes on Hilton Head. You know, there's really an antagonism against uh, northern and, and RJ uh, actually worked as a vice president for Chicago Corporation. He commuted every week. Okay. Um, Carol, on the other hand, uh, she was an executive producer with CBS Sports, came down and covered the Sea Pines tennis thing, fell in love with the area, and that's where they decided to raise a family. Okay? Um, and, and, and they know, I mean, you know, that certain quarters of Buford County, they, they, they're just not liking that. Okay? So I knew that. Uh, and, and in fact, Bobby Hood, who had not lost a uh, malpractice case and was proud to say he hadn't, and then all of a sudden forgot it after he got hammered here. Uh, and he didn't even stick around for the verdict. Can you imagine? Chip and chip. But uh, <laughs> so here's what he tried to paint me. You know, he, he painted me in the opening statement. Mr. Keenum's a northerner, you know that? I mean, he, he came down and he did ba doo ba doo ba doo ba doo ba doo. And I'm sitting there saying, Northern? I'm from North Carolina, born and raised. Okay. I was never out of the state of North Carolina until I went to college for Christ's So I was able to drop that in. Okay. Again, you know, kind of put a fog over me. But the big one, holy shit. You talk about the black hats not being able to help themselves. Miss Bartholomew, you're from the North, aren't you? First question. Oh, man. Yes, sir. Second question, even worse. When are you going to move back? <laughs> My God. Son of a bitch. Okay. And so what did that do? Now, Sally, uh, we lawyers have the ability to center in on what we think is important. And what's important to that fellow over there is you're from the North. Right. <clears throat> oh, right. You don't deny that, right? When are you going to move back? <laughs> and she says, um, you couldn't dynamite me out of here. <laughs> we love this area and we love it because of the people. I wish I was born here. Yeah. yeah. But I don't have any control over that. So I do have control over where we're raising our kids. Now, Jesus, can you tell me a rebound that's any better than that? Yeah, really. Really? <laughs> that is great. Well, um, it, it, 
Don, talk a little bit about uh, the presentation of damages in this case. I mean, obviously, Sally was uh, was profoundly affected and, um, uh, you know, and this was going to be a lifelong injury. But just talk a little bit about how you presented that to the jury. One thing I, I did want to point out is the way you handled the life care plan um, to the jury, which was to basically to explain, as you told him, like, look, we're going to have to go through this. It's going to be a little bit tedious. It's not going to be the most interesting thing, but it's really important because it talks about, you know, what her needs are. But, uh, you know, I, I, I like just, you know, sort of explaining it that way that, that, you know, because even when you, you know, everybody hates sitting through a witness at trial where it looks like, you know, uh, the paint's drying, but, um, but then some of them can be like that, but, uh, but, you know, you got to do it because it's so important. Well, I, you know, I've got a whole um, template about life care plans. Number one, to make sure we don't gloss over the term. This is a plan for life. More importantly, this is a plan that's going to be in effect when we're all dead. Every single one of us are going to be in the ground, dust to dust. And this plan will protect Sally every day, every minute that she will. And it's your job to determine what's in that plan. Uh, if I had a voir dire, I would simply say, do any of you object to taking the time to examine every single thing in the life care plan? It's going to take some time. It's going to be boring. But how can you determine whether or not justice requires it unless you do take it? But I won't fuss at you if you say you're just, you're just not in it. You know? And I, I will. I'll have a couple of people say, holy shit, I'm not. Of course, they see it as the first opportunity to get out of the jury service that they wanted to get out of. Right. I am a, when you mentioned the National Law Journal, selecting three lawyers that were the best in the country. And, and uh, they didn't have anybody in the South, so I think that was it, you know. So they just said, okay, he's it. <laughs> um, but the other is a dear friend of mine from the inner circle, Tom Moore. And he's practiced in New York City. And his philosophy about a life care plan is entirely different. He does not go through all the itemization. He just said, here it is, $10 million. But now he has a little bit different jury pool. Right. To where, you know, they're not really interested in anything other than where we're going to put the decimal. You know, I feel like I have to sell everything. If there's three separate wheelchairs in the life care plan, I'm bringing all three of them into court. We're going to look at the difference in all three. And why Sally would need one and not the other. And yes, it does take a ship of time to do it. But here's what it sets up. I don't think I did it in Sally's case because I don't think I had to. But I say, okay, ladies and gentlemen, now we're coming down to truth time on this life care plan. And my last trial was in Chicago, and it was no different than any other other life care plan dominated case. It was a meningitis case. And injuries were similar to uh, Sally's. And for every page of the life care plan, I got them blown up. And there were 17 pages. 
And I put all 17 of them, I ring them first around the jury box, the judge's box, and then all the way around the back. Of, so you can see all 17 of them right there. And so I just took boom, to the boom. But what I was doing, Steve, is I said, listen, if there are any of these items that you don't think the evidence proved, and you don't think Sally needs, here, take this magic marker. It's a red magic marker. Okay? And with your own hands, strike through it. She don't get it. So if you don't want her to have that therapy, it's your duty to strike through it. Okay. Yeah. Now I found, because I've gotten to know a lot of the jurors after trials, they said, man, did you intimidate us on that one? Because nobody, <laughs> because what I do is I wait, jury's in there for about an hour, then I go up to the bailiff and says, hey, they, they need this red magic marker. Can you take that in there? And so, <laughs> and they know who it came from, right? Um, but the jurors told me, do you think anybody's going to pick that pen up and take something away from the town? Are you kidding me? You could have had a Rolls Royce on there, and we'd let it go, okay? Um, but look at this now. I mean, they didn't cut a nickel off the life care plan in this case, and they gave two, three million in a Above that, even though I didn't ask for it. Right. Didn't, didn't ask for it. Uh, so that's pretty much my philosophy. Oh, yeah. The other thing is, um, if there's anything, you know, a lot of stuff goes down during trial. And I did this in Chicago. I don't know. I didn't do it in, in South case, but... Um, Right before they got all the evidence and everything else, I said, Judge, whoa, wait a minute, please. Let me turn to the fourth page on the life care plan, item number 16. I've done a lot of thinking about this. And I got to have peace of mind. So, Your Honor, I officially withdraw this, please strike it through, instruct the jury not to consider. Now, what do you think that does, Steve? <laughs> well, it all goes back to credibility. I mean, that's we, it. Yep. That's, it. that's it. That's exactly what it is. Uh, and yeah, this works. It works. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you, you mentioned the jury. Did you get a chance to talk to this jury afterwards? And if so, what did they uh, what they have to say about the trial? Well, I always make it a point to talk with them if I can. Yeah. Um, except in this case, they reached out to us. Okay, because we were still hunkered down at the uh, local hotel, which I had mentioned a couple of times when we were over at the hotel. Um, and I mentioned, you know, uh, the, there was kind of a bed and breakfast over there. And I'm, now you got me going because uh, we got breakfast included. And I'm some of the finest 
South Carolina biscuits and gravy, you all going to see. Okay. Uh, and mentioned it. Okay. So two of them came by that night. And thank God I hadn't started drinking yet. Okay. <laughs> they wanted to talk. Okay. But the next day, <laughs> that little restaurant was full of the jury. I think they were after the biscuits and grapes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they wanted they wanted to talk to us. Okay. You know, they wanted the kind of the behind the scenes. And one of the behind the scenes was the second chair to Bobby Hood. The only thing I'll say is what their question was. Was that man drunk during the trial? Ooh. That's <laughs> never a good question. Well, fact of the matter he was. Okay. Oh. And he went into rehab shortly thereafter. I didn't, you know, uh, but um, they wanted, they primarily, because, you know, I mentioned earlier about the, you know, the National Judicial College, who all the time trying to take the pulse of the jury. And God, they just hate it when we fight with one another. They really do. It's just so unprofessional. It's not necessary. Jury sees it as a distraction. And they're angry about it. Yeah. So it's like you said, I, I won the, uh, not won, I was given the first ever professionalism and civility award by our chief justice. And there was another 10 years went by before another plaintiff's lawyer got it. But that's how I try the case. I'm, I'm not, I'm not engaging in that stuff. And so yeah. what they were asking is, should those lawyers that call Nasty names and make up shit and, and and the judge, the judge had to sit him down a couple times and say, "You stand up again, I'm going to lock you up." I mean that kind of mm. that kind of thing. Now they think it's looking like a fighter, mm. um, but what was the dominant is why should they be able to do that to you? Yeah, I mean, and hasn't Carol lost enough? than to be cross-examined that way, that's just not fair. Yeah. Uh, and so, yes, they were uh, very much wanting civility and professionalism, which they get with me anyway. Yeah, yeah, I I, I absolutely agree. I mean, and it, it, sometimes it's a, it's a, a you know, easier said than done, you know, when you're in the middle of battle, but, uh, but yeah, it's definitely, definitely important. Um, well, Don, this has been just a, a, a great conversation. We've really enjoyed our time with you. Um, I want to remind everybody, we've been talking about the Bartholomew versus Zerberg case uh, that was tried in uh, 2000 in Beaufort County, South Carolina, and resulted in a $13.75 million verdict. Um, Don, is there any uh, anything that we haven't talked about that case that you want to make sure our listeners know about? Well, I had seven pretty strong obstacles that we've talked about, I think, every single one. Um, from a trial lawyer standpoint, <clears throat> um, juries don't know that. Yeah. Your head knows that. Just get it out of your head, okay? I mean, it's like a football game. If, if you convince yourself, I mean, I, I played for Tennessee back in the day when Alabama 
was our big invincible, can't be beaten opponent, you know. And I remember one coach um, telling us, because we went down Death Valley, we were playing a, a scrimmage game with the bear. Mm-hmm. Okay. He said, don't think of this team as an Alabama team, okay? Think of them as the East Rutherford, New Jersey, PA team, that's all. But don't ever get it in your head that they're Alabama, just straight ahead. And so that's what you got to do. In fact, I'm advising two lawyers right now who are scared to death about things that they can't do anything about. And they just got to get it out of their head. That's all going there marching. That's all. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, not only to you know get the get the doubt out of your head and 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 regain your confidence, but you know to show that you care, show you're passionate about your case. I mean, I I know we've said it several times on the on the podcast. You know, if if it doesn't look like you care about your case, then the jury sure as hell isn't going to care about the case. Um, so you know, you got to have passion in the courtroom. Um, Bullseye. And, and on behalf of a, a trial lawyer posse out here, let me thank the one and you for doing this. Because this, as I told you, when I was a puppy lawyer, I experienced the same thing with these little cassette tapes. One a month. Major trials, each and every one. I learned more about being a trial lawyer that way than I'd ever did uh, from any other venture. Well, Don, we we appreciate that. Is uh, that we 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 really appreciate that uh, uh, mentioning that, and uh, it's a good way to announce our cassette tape line is coming out next week. No, <laughs> um, no, no that, that, uh, <laughs> we have to thank people like you, Don, for Absolutely. for giving their time to share that knowledge um, with everyone else because it's it's just pure you know, generosity and wanting to make, uh, you know, all of our colleagues better lawyers, but without, without you, it wouldn't be possible. Well, you know, Ron, there's a great, I've been asked this question a number of times. What's the biggest difference between plaintiff's lawyers and defense lawyers? Okay. And there's a lot of things I can say, but one thing that's for sure, we not only care about our clients, about our firm, but we care about each other. Yeah. The defense bar doesn't share. Mm-hmm. When a defense lawyer gets clipped, they celebrate it. Okay? That's not us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And Very it's, true. It's this that helps the thread of caring. It really does. And it's so important. So mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. my only advice is don't mess it up. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we, uh, you know, and, and Don, we, it, it, one of the, the, one of the reasons why we do this is not only because, you know, we, we, um, you know, feel like we, we want to share with everybody else, but it's get chances to talk with, uh, just, you know, fantastic trial lawyers and, um, you know, and, and, uh, basically get a weekly one-on-one session with some of the greatest lawyers in the country and, um, and, and hear, uh, you know, strategy on how to try cases, which is something that Yvonne and I are, we love to talk about. And we love having you on. So, so thank you so much, Don. One thing that's powerful now, if I could point this out, it's one thing to get a lawyer on to talk about cross examination. Okay, talking many cases. Probably. I don't think that's as effective as saying, "Okay, let's take the Smith case and right. talk about how cross examination blew the lid off." Okay, 
that's where you want. Yeah, that's, that's right. Right. Yeah. And it, yeah, it, it's so, and it's so helpful. And it's so it's, you know, for newer lawyers as they learn how to evaluate cases and, and how to look at cases, I think it's so helpful. I mean, one of the first things I always think about when a lot of the cases um, that we've talked about on the show, you know, if they're tried, they're not slam dunk cases for the most part. Right. And when we talk about them, like one of my games that I play with myself when I'm like preparing for the episode is like, would I have taken this case? Like what, or, you know, if it was offered to me, would I have seen the potential? Would I have, um, would I have been scared by it? Um, and, and I think that that's something that I know a lot of, um, I think everyone can benefit from, from the episodes, but especially newer lawyers, um, from, from hearing how great lawyers like yourself have handled, have handled cases. And, and hopefully that gives them the confidence to take it, you know, take a chance on cases they might've said no to before. Well, thanks so much. It's been a real privilege. Yeah, no, appreciate it. I want to remind everybody we've been talking with Don Keenan. And if you want to look up Don uh, and, and his law firm based out of Atlanta, you can go to KeenanLawFirm.com or go to KeenanTrialInstitute.com and, uh, and, and look him up. Don, thank you so much for your time. God bless you all. Take care. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast. And we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.